God and Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in the midst of um, a world that is honestly very confusing to us. Uh, Lord, that uh, you have spoken to us is such a great blessing, Lord. I pray that you would give in each and every one of our hearts this morning a uh, wanderlust to explore who you are through the words of your scriptures, that we would discover who you are by you telling us specifically who you are and who uh, we are and who we can be in Christ when we uh, have saving faith in him. So, Father, we pray that you would be accomplishing that here in this text, and Lord, that you would go in front of us, that the Spirit would go in front of us to teach us uh, what he has for us this morning. So, Lord, we pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. Um, Let's go ahead and just jump right in, guys. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. That's where we're starting this morning. I want you to digest every word alongside of me. So, uh, starting in verse 17. Now, I say this and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have, learned about, have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. This passage, I think what it does is uh, pulls back a curtain on what life looks like without Jesus. And it, uh, if we can be honest, it's pretty sobering. It's, uh, it's a little bleak to hear what uh, a world without the God and Father of this universe, Jesus, His Son, without the Spirit, and, uh, and honestly, it's pretty difficult. It's been a difficult passage to wrestle with this morning. Have you ever had someone that you love very deeply but that uh, is deceived? Not, not, not something where you think that they're deceived. It's like you can see it in them. You can see the ways in which they have believed lies to their soul, and it grieves you. Maybe it's a, a, a friend in which alcohol is just destroying one relationship in their life after another. Maybe it's a roommate that is just deceived, and she thinks that if she throws her body at every single guy that comes along her path that she'll find true love. Maybe it's a parent that is literally having limbs severed because they continue to smoke, and they're just deceived that it's not the smoking that is killing them. Maybe it is uh, someone who, uh, it's a parent that thinks that uh, the pills that they are receiving are giving them everything that they need to cope with life. Maybe it's a spouse who thinks that they would be happier if they weren't around anymore. For, for me, uh, the first time that I can remember in my life being uh, so keenly aware of being around somebody who I just, I didn't think was deceived, but knew was deceived, was a good friend that I had growing up who was uh, suffering from uh, borderline personality disorder. And we were having conversations about things that totally missed one another. 
It was as if I was trying to explain a third dimension to a stick figure on a page. It was totally not connecting. We were believing totally different things, and it was grievous. I think that all of us know and have maybe somebody in their minds, and when we see that deception, and it's so clear to us, the starkness of that contrast grieves our souls. In fact, I I think that we go through some kind of grief cycle in the midst of all of this. Uh, Maybe that person is your parent, and you started off just in denial. They're, They're not, you know, they're stepping out. They're doing some things that you wouldn't necessarily want for them to do, but uh, maybe they're not totally and completely deceived. But then when you realize that, yes, they have stepped completely out of truth, you became angry with them. You started bargaining with them, doing anything in your power to restore truth, and that led you to a place that was just, it was crushing, it was defeating it was depressing. The one, the one piece of that grief cycle that I don't think that we ever get to if we truly love someone is that acceptance piece at the very end. We don't accept it. At, at, uh, at most, we get to a place of just confused pity for the ones that we love. And that confusion and sorrow, that sense of helplessness, hopelessness, is really understandable in some sense because that's exactly what deception always does. Deception always creates chaos and confusion, not just in the life of the one who is deceived, but it spills over into the lives of family members and friends, into communities and into the cultures that they live in. And honestly, it is grievous. It is hard for us. It's hard hard to know what to do when we are confronted with the deception in an individual that we love, but what this morning I think the passage tells us is that we live in the midst of a deceived world. So if we don't know what to do, if it is hard for us to know how to uh, confront deception in an individual that we love, how much more difficult is it for us to see the deception that is in the world and to know what to do? Paul is after us this morning. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, he gives us a foundation of worship. He tells us precisely what the gospel is, that it took uh, death, it took the death, the physical death of Jesus to pull us into a spiritual life with him forever. And then from chapter four forward, it doesn't just talk about that uh, foundation of worship, it talks about what walking out in, on that foundation of work Uh, of worship looks like. So let me ask you a question this this morning. It's one that uh, I think that we all at some level have to come uh, to an answer with, and we've got the question in our minds, how do we walk out in this world? So we've talked in the previous uh, weeks about how we walk out in a worthy way, about how we uh, walk out uh, in our God's gracious gifts that he gives us. This morning we're talking about how we walk out in this world. How do we walk in this world? How do we understand it? How do we as Christians think and live in this culture? This uh, week I was actually asked by uh, a person in our church uh, that was not asking that question, but was asking one that uh, was underneath all of it. It was like, hey, Chris, what do you read? What What resources do you go to to help you understand the world that we live in. And I could tell you about the authors that I typically think are pretty insightful. I could tell you about David Brooks and Jonathan Haidt and Malcolm Gladwell and uh, George Will and Arthur Brooks, who I think have uh, their finger on not the entirety of the culture, but have a pretty good 
feel on the pulse of what is happening in the midst of us. And I turn towards them because they're a lot smarter than I am, and they have a lot of really good things to say. I could tell you that uh, my 100-year-old self that's trapped in this 35-year-old body daily reads the Wall Street Journal, and I rarely miss the PBS News Hour on Friday with Brooks and Shields, Shields and Brooks. I, I love to go in and hear the competing ideas in the journal. I love the fact that the news comes from a uh, slightly liberal bent. I love that the commentary comes from a slightly conservative bent. I love getting some feel for how that newspaper uh, tries to make sense of this world that's coming along. I love hearing Shields and Brooks talk about what is going on. I subscribe to uh, National Affairs, which is a pretty conservative uh, journal. I subscribe to a Foreign Affairs, which is typically pretty liberal. I can tell you that, like, just podcast-wise, every once in a while, I'll check in with, like, a super liberal, you know, side of things with uh, um, Pod Save America. I'll even listen every once in a while to Ben Shapiro on the other side, just because their discussion of what's going on helps me as a pastor do some kind of diagnosis for what's happening in my own heart, the environment that my family is in, the environment that my church family is in, the environment that my city is in, the environment that the nation is in today. I can tell you about uh, my favorite, uh, you know, think tank, the Hoover Institute. Uh, actually, one that might surprise you, I think, is I, I listen to not most of, but some of uh, Joe Rogan's podcasts. I'm not suggesting that you do. It's not necessarily the best resource if you're looking for like a good worldview, but I find it really fascinating because he has in one day like conspiracy theorists, and the next day it's an actor, then it's Sam Harris, an intellectual. It's just this like group of people that he invites on and just has discussions with, and I don't even listen to it for the people that are on there. I listen to it because it is fascinating to see Joe Rogan, this guy that I don't even think he understands what's going on in his own life. He has uh, one side of him that wants total and complete freedom to be able to smoke whatever he wants, to be able to do whatever he wants. And then on the other side, in the next moment, he'll be talking about how uh, the discipline of martial arts and family and all of these things uh, help him be stable and rooted. It's like this guy that's in an internal conflict with himself, I think is a master class in some ways on what's going on, just the chaos that I think is going on in people's lives. But if you want to know what my most trusted place that I go to to help me understand this culture is, you'll find it in verse 17. Paul says this, now I say and I testify in the Lord. The Spirit of God is bringing truth to us to help us understand this world that we live in through His Word. And I understand it. Some may say that it is insane to look to a 2,000-year-old book to help you understand today's day and age, to which I would very respectfully respond, it seems unwise to look to our culture today to comment on itself. You would not go to a uh, toddler to figure out their view of the meaning of life. I, I love going to uh, this text, the Word of God, which has withstood the test of time that has built civilizations to help me understand how to interact with this culture. But it's a good question for us to take up this morning because it's exactly what's on all of our mind. It's a subtext to the way that we live every day. And churches across this country have different answers to this question, by the way. 
How do we live amidst the culture? You're going to find some churches out there that say that we live uh, offensive to the culture. We're on offense. Others that say we retreat from culture, and still others that say, no, 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 we've got to be relevant to cultures. And when you examine all of them, all of them have like the seed of truth and some goodness in them, but then also have these excesses. If you have a, uh, a church that wants to be on offense, uh, it'd be easy for us to say, well, that's wrong to be on offense. But the truth is, is that if God's Word provides the best way for human life to flourish, it makes sense that we would tell people about it, right? It makes sense that we would try to work through the institutions of our culture to try to provide a framework for people to live in that life. It's not, it's not bad to be a little bit on offense, but the excess of offense is, is that we don't provide an area of grace for people that do not agree with us on the most fundamental issues to know and understand that this is a place that should be characterized by love. If we retreat from culture, there is something in that that says, hey, listen, we are not supposed to be of the world. We should in some ways be separated from the wor uh, world in terms of our behavior. Uh, even some of that space helps provide a clear delineation between what life in Christ looks like and what life outside of Christ looks like. So it's not all bad, but if we do that, there are so many things that we miss out on, but the ones that come straight to mind are we miss out on uh, some really good things in art, in music. We, we miss out on being able to be involved in a culture where we can be salt and light, so we immediately exclude ourselves from the commandments of Christ to have some kind of regenerative effect on the people that we live around. It forsakes our very mission to try to retreat from the world, but if we're trying to be relevant, maybe that's the key. Maybe it's the key to be relevant. Here, here's the problem with uh, the relevancy argument. Most of the time when I hear people say, I'm in but not of the world, what I, it, it, in myself, I'll use myself as an example, when I let that part shape how I interact with the world, what I find is, is that what I really mean by being in but not of is what I mean is I'm like the world. Do you see this in the church? I've had well-intentioned Christians tell me like, hey, listen, I'm involved in this culture, and if I'm not uh, participating in the conversations that we're having, if I'm uh, not using the same kind of words that they're using, then I, they're going to tune me out completely. If I'm not drinking like the people around me, I, I, I go to bars and uh, I'm able to have these conversations. Listen, that's wonderful, but if you look too much like the world, you're forsaking some specific uh, commandments of Christ that tell us, let no, no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. No coarse joking. Jesus tells us that. If you're in the midst of that, you're literally disobeying, so that can't be the way that you're being relevant to the world. If you're drinking like the world, you haven't found a way to be salt and light in that area. That's one that, um, you know, it's been hard for me recently. I've had some struggles in that area. How do, I, how do I relate with people when there's alcohol involved in the party or, you know, at the concert? It's not, those aren't easy questions to answer. I think that there's a better fourth way, and it's one that borrows from the best of each one of these, and it's to live faithfully within the culture. We're living distinctly different, stable, flourishing lives, and that is an aroma of Christ to others. I think that this is maybe even the argument of this text. The argument of this text is that we, can, uh, that we should walk unlike the world. 
that we should be unlike them, not hostile to them, not separated from them, but also not like them. We walk unlike the world. That's where we're going this morning. We walk unlike the world, within the world, to win the world. Where do I see that? Look at verse 17 with me. There's a couple of points right here. You must. This is a matter of obedience. You must. Look at that word, must. No longer. No longer implies that there was a previous life lived like the world. You must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Why? Thankfully, he tells us. He uses the word because. And I think that what we, when we distill all of this down, what we find is, is that we walk unlike the world because lives lived for the world are hollow, unsatisfying, and unbecoming. They're hollow, unsatisfying, and unbecoming. Do you see this with me? Look, verse 18. A life lived for the world is hollow. Verse 18 says, the world has futile minds, darkened understanding, ignorant inside, hardened hearts. These are the things that he uses, really strong language. Can we agree with that? That's hard language. There's some of us that don't, we wrestle, we see those words and we go, listen, I'm on mission to these people. Does the Bible really have to say that it's futile, that it's uh, uh, darkened, that it's ignorant, that it's hardened? Those are difficult words, and we have to deal with them this morning. What is he saying? He's saying that uh, that worldview, among other things, lacks eternal substance. So is everything that they do characterized by futility and darkness? Don't get caught up with that. What I want to do is focus in on the fact that a worldview apart from God lacks eternal substance. The culture becomes dark and void of spiritual fruit. That hardness of heart language tells us that there are unfeeling hearts that are insensitive to eternal spiritual truth. I think what Paul's saying is, is that you can't find the meaning that your heart craves in the hollowness of the world. But he's not just saying that. He's saying that there's actually an effect to the hollowness and emptiness inevitably leaves room for darkness and danger. If there's a spiritual vacuum, something will try to fill that vacuum. An important note is, uh, I just want to step back from this and acknowledge our culture would not agree with what we're saying here, okay? We need to be very clear. If you're in here this morning and you're going, I disagree with that, listen, I get it. Because really and honestly, what Paul is claiming here is to be the one who sees clearly. You remember that relationship from earlier? He's claiming that as a Christian, as a new creation in Christ, being made alive in Christ, we can see the darkness and the deception that's in the world that they can't see. Is that a hard truth? It is a hard truth. It's a sobering truth, but it's what Paul says. As Paul sailed into the city of Ephesus, he would have seen this gigantic temple of granite and marble. It would have been a, uh, a temple that we can still actually, you could go to today. It's the temple of Artemis, the daughter of Zeus. And Artemis was, among other things, the goddess of fertility, protection of monger, uh, uh, mothers, and also the bringer of light. That's what her titles were. That's what her job was. And so it's easy for us in this idea that like we're able to see truth. We can agree with Paul. Paul was sailing into the city where there was this God who many sacrifices were made to, where people depended on, and she was supposed to be the bringer of light, the bringer of fertility, the bringer of life, 
and the protector of mothers. And as he was sailing into the city, he would have seen very clearly that marble statue is no bringer of life. She's no protector of mothers. She's no life giver. A marble stone statue could not bring any light, could not protect one mother, and certainly could never give life. And he saw it in the midst of the Roman culture in which maternal death rates would have been very high, in which infanticide was a part of the actual culture. A a Roman father, uh, uh, immediately upon the birth of his son or daughter, would have had the legal right, maybe even the expectation, to examine the baby that was born. And if he decided that there was some sort of defect, he would have had the legal right to go and throw that child off of a cliff to, to uh, leave the baby outside of the gates of the city to die by way of exposure. They, that's not like an ethereal thing. They're literally digging up mass graves of infants from the Roman Empire. It's not a thing that like kind of happened. It happened. That's the kind of darkness that Paul is writing about. So when he says these really hard things, he has in mind the darkness that he's in, but he's also seeing that Jesus is not the bringer of light. He is the light. He's not only the protector of mothers, he's the author of life. It's easy for us to see today, even in this room, to look back at Rome to look back at those cultures and see the wickedness that was in them. It's easy for us to look at the history of anti-Semitism in, uh, in Europe in, uh, from like really early centuries and know and acknowledge the darkness that is there. It's easy from our place in history to look back at American slavery and see the wickedness that was there. But it's really hard for us in the midst of this generation with its own darkness, its own futility, to see it. But future generations will see our darkness. It will not be hidden, and it certainly is not hidden from God. Christians, regardless of their place in history, cannot walk in the hollow, empty darkness of the world. Feudal minds are needing to be renewed. Darkness needs to be enlightened. Ignorance needs truth. Hardened hearts need the grace and compassion of a loving Savior. And what we get to do this morning is rejoice because in Jesus we do not lead a hollow, empty life. Jesus is satisfying. If you're walking in the hollowness of the world, then the effect we can find in verse 19, look at it with me. He even specifically says that all of these things have an effect. They have become... They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What he's saying is, is that that hollow life is unsatisfying. Do you see it? He uses the word callous. He says that all of those things in the world produce a callousness. What does a callous do? It literally makes you unfeeling in that area. And he's saying that there's a hardness of heart that leads to a callousness, a numbness. It says that they were given up to sensuality. This means that they lacked self-control, that hollowness, that emptiness had to be filled with something. Maybe it can be filled with sex. So what I'm going to become is insatiable. But it doesn't just say that, it says that they were uh, greedy for all kinds of impurity. 
That is a weird statement. They were greedy. They were literally like desirous of every kind of impurity. Man. It's almost a shamelessness to sin that Paul is trying to talk about. So what we see is, is that there is no satisfying that infinite vacuum with worldly things. Walking like the world leaves us unsatisfied because the hollowness cannot satisfy the longings of our soul. And here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. Would you even want it to? Would you even want this world to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul? This, the, you can reduce this to math, okay? I'm a dummy when it comes to math, but we can turn this into an equation. Let's say that you made a Faustian bargain. You were able to sell your soul, and you could get all of the popularity all of the pleasure, all of the prosperity that your soul ever longed for for the next 60 years. I don't know how much that ends up, maybe it's this much. I don't know, maybe it's, I don't know what the number is, but here's what I do know, is that that will not provide purpose for you. The prosperity, the pleasure, it's not gonna provide purpose. So when you subtract out of that equation an eternal purpose, here's what the dummy in me knows, it doesn't matter how big that number is. If you're subtracting an infinite amount of purpose from it, it's infinitely worthless. It equals infinite worthlessness. There's something inside of us that struggles with that a bit. Maybe it's a love of the world. Jesus makes this plain to us in Mark chapter 8 when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We need that this morning because walking like the world will not satisfy us. And I pray this morning that you are not one of the people who is blind to it. I pray that you can see it because we were made for so much more. How do I know that? Verse 19 says, but... That hollowness that's unsatisfying, it, it's not you, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Take a look there in that same sentence, the truth is in Christ. If you want to hear the truth, if you don't want to be taken in by the darkness of the world, you need to hear that you are unbecoming of the world. What do I mean by that? You need to hear Paul's words that uh, you are not darkened and unfeeling, futile, or ignorant. That is not who you are anymore in Jesus Christ. You were taught in him, these verses say. In verse 22, it says, uh, you were taught a specific thing, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. So your old self was corrupt through its deceitful desires, these verses says, and you were just like the world. Jeremiah 17, 9 says something that resonates with my heart. It says that the heart of man, the heart of man, is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. And you are to take that old, corrupted, deceived self, and Paul says, put it off. You can't keep it. It's not you anymore. You shared in the feudal darkness, but now you are, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This echoes Paul's language almost everywhere that there is something about our minds that need to be renewed. Romans chapter 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what? Mind. 
There's something that Paul is trying to tell us here that we need to be renewed, and we need that renewal to take place in our minds so that we might not be futile in our thinking anymore. We might not be darkened. We might not be ignorant, but we might be renewed in the spirit of our minds. So many of us long for this. So many of us long to be unconformed to the world and transformed by the renewing of our minds. How does that happen? Verse 24. Put on the new self. Put on the new self. We put the old self away. We put on the new self. What? Created after the, what? Likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Walking like the world is unbecoming of us because Jesus is recreating you into a new thing, into a new creation, into a new self. And this recreated self is truly righteous and holy. God is recreating us after His own likeness. Have you ever, let me ask you this question, have you ever seen someone transformed the way that it's talking about here? Have you ever been near someone? I I don't necessarily mean in a moment. That happens. Have you ever been around somebody who came to know Jesus and now they're not the same person? Their old self is totally different. Their new self is completely new. Have you ever been around that type of person? It's so encouraging. But here's, here's what I, I want to get apart, uh, you know, get across to everyone. When you see the darkness and deception of the world and how that line runs through your own heart, by the grace of Jesus, we shed the coil of old self and we put on a new self. And that happened everywhere that Jesus went. You, you may not have been a believer, you may not have been in the church long enough to see that happen in real time with somebody's life. I, I pray that you get to see it because it is one of those evidences of uh, the reality of the things that we believe. It actually uh, not just uh, procures but secures a faith inside of us to be able to see God working it out in other people. But we can see it right in the pages of Scripture. A woman comes into a home where Jesus is eating with these Pharisees, these religious leaders of the time, and the woman comes in sobbing into this home. She was an uninvited guest. She comes into the house, and she doesn't weep at Jesus' feet. She weeps on Jesus' feet. And she uses her hair to begin wiping the dirt and dust off of his feet. This is a a woman who is coming very near to knowing and grieving her old self. And what happens is, is that pompous Pharisee, the religious leader, thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of sinner is touching his feet. He would have known the uncleanliness that was coming against him. If he knew, if he was a prophet, he'd know. And Jesus, perceiving his thoughts, not because the Pharisee said them out loud, perceiving his thoughts tells him this amazing parable where he says, hey, listen, there's two men, and they owe the same guy. One owes a lot of money. The other one owns an exceptional amount of money to this guy, and the guy forgives both debts. Which one loves more? And the Pharisee says, I presume it would be the one that has the bigger debt, and Jesus does this amazing thing. He says, you judge rightly, and then 
turning away from that man and turning to this woman at his feet, he looks at her. Almost every time in Scripture that Jesus is confronted by a sinner, you know what he does? He looks at him. Men, women, he looks at them. Turning towards the woman, he says, you judge rightly. This woman has not ceased to give me kisses and to uh, clean my feet, which you did not do. She has loved much. Therefore, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Jesus tells this sinful woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can you imagine the God of this universe telling you to go in peace and that your sins are forgiven? This is the kind of love that Jesus displays When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he says no more old self, here's a brand new self. When Jesus goes along the way and he sees Zacchaeus in this tree, we think of Zacchaeus and it's like, oh, he's a tax collector. He's a guy from the IRS, nobody likes those guys. We don't even have an analog in our society. I want you to imagine IRS meets mafia meets like military. And he gets rich by going around to the people of his city and going, you owe the government this much money, you owe me this much money. Can you imagine the amount of hate and vitriol that people had for a man like Zacchaeus? Because they said it. Jesus goes along the way. He sees Zacchaeus in a tree who's just trying to get a glimpse of him. He goes, Zacchaeus, come down from here. We're going to your house today. And the people couldn't stand it. The people go... What is this man doing, going to eat with a sinner like that? He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, and Jesus loves on him, and Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of my stuff away, and anything that I've stolen, you know how much he's stolen? All of it. I'm going to go repay it four times over. What does Jesus say? He says, today, salvation has come to this house. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus, when confronted by a mob who had caught a woman in adultery. So I don't want you to think this woman was not likely very clothed. She was probably not kindly dealt with on her way to Jesus' feet. They take her, they rough her up, they throw her at Jesus' feet. Not with secret shame. Her shame is now right there in the open, and they say, The word of God says we're to stone this woman to death. What do you say? And Jesus goes, that is what the law says. He who's without sin casts the first stone. And he bends down, and what does he do? He looks at her. In the midst of all that shame, he looks at her. And you know what happens with the crowd? One by one, oldest, because they know their sin. One by one, they go away. And he looks up and he goes, woman, where are your accusers? She says, they've they've all gone. And he lifts her face and says, neither do I condemn. You want to talk about a feeling of new self? 
That old self is gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. These are the words of a loving and gracious Savior. Jesus, when confronted by this mob, is willing to give grace upon grace because that's what he always does. There is truly now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus sees us in the midst of the bedlam of the sin of this world. He sees us in the midst of deception and darkness and hardness. And you know what he's willing to do in the midst of that? He's willing to die in order to give us new selves. That's what this passage is all about. If you get nothing else this morning, if the topic that we're about to like launch into is something that like starts to distract and wrestle with you, I hope that you walk out of this room knowing that there is grace upon grace. There's oceans of grace for you. Infinite grace for you. Jesus gives us this new selves, and it's not some arbitrary thing. Verse 24 says that these new selves are what? Look at it with me. I want you, don't listen to me. See and hear God, save it to you, created after the likeness of God. Why? Why does he do that? Because in the beginning, God decided to make man, and he says, let's, let's make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And you know what immediately happens afterwards? Satan, hating that image of God, decides to begin immediately waging a war on that image. Immediately. Satan begins to wage a war on that image, telling us that we could be like God. God just said, I'm gonna make them in my image. (laughs) Satan's here telling a lie to Eve and Adam, saying, you wanna be like God? They should have already known we are like God. But of course, he wants to deceive, he wants to darken, he wants futility, he wants hardness. Ever since, he's waging a war. This is why racism is wicked. This is why misogyny is detestable. This is why bigotry is so far away from the heart of God. It's not merely because all of those things, and they are, are an affront to a human person. It's because they're an affront to the image of God. It is not just a horizontal sin. These are not, if you are pro-life this morning, and what that means for you is that you value all life. You value the lives of different races. You value women. You are pro-life. You value the inmate. You value everybody's life. If you are truly, deeply convinced of a pro-life stance this morning, you need to know that it's not a horizontal thing. The reason why we ought to be the most pro-life people in the world is because it's an affront against a cosmic image. It's cosmic treason. Our new self, being renewed in mind, must, remember that word, must walk unlike a futile, dark, ignorant world which wages war on the image of God, the Imago Dei, and is central to this new self. Therefore, Imago Dei issues are not political to us. They are not primarily political to us. 
If you think that this is going to be a political sermon, I just want you to know it's not. To the extent that it is, it's about the politics of a kingdom. This is a theological and scientific issue for us. It's at the core of who made us. It's at the core of our values. So today, 46 years after Roe versus Wade this week, but really after millennia now of the destruction of God's image, we stand with churches across this entire nation to denounce the evil of abortion. And I want to acknowledge this is a hard space. We've got to do two things this morning with we must, with all the boldness and courage that the Spirit will grant us, say that abortion is murder. And there's no other word that we can use to describe it because we're putting to death an image bearer of God. We've got to take that amount of boldness, but we've also got to declare with the same courage and boldness the grace upon grace extended to us in Jesus Christ. Let's not forget who's writing this message. It's Paul. If you hear the word murder attributed to abortion, and that's something that you go, man, this church is holier than thou. They anger me because they're talking about uh, me or my loved ones as murderers. No one understands. That could not be further from the truth. Paul oversaw and approved of the murder of Christians. Jesus commands all of us not to hate because that hate is murderous in our hearts. All of us together, we are murderers, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want for us to remember Jesus' words, neither do I condemn you. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There is really, truly no condemnation for that new self in Jesus Christ, grace for you. Grace for you. But there's no other way to describe abortion. It is the murder of God's image bearer. Where do I come about that? I just want to make two very quick uh, theological points, and then I want to move on from there to talk specifically about it in the few minutes that we have left. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, uh, David in Psalm 139 verse 13 says this to God who is worshiping. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet there were none of them. God knew you from the instant that he created you. He gave his image to you at the instant that he created you. In Psalm 51, 5, uh, uh, David even talks about the state of his soul at conception. You can go read about it. The image of God was attributed to you at the moment of conception. We see uh, when Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he was no less Jesus at that exact moment. 
We see uh, John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb, being filled with the Spirit. It is not the act of birth that attributes humanness. It's certainly not the act of birth that attributes God's likeness. We believe this happens at the moment of conception. Why? Because at that moment, a unique spiritual soul is created. At that moment, a unique person's DNA is created. And by eight weeks, by eight weeks, all of the organs are present and functioning. The heart is circulating blood. The kidneys are filtering. The brain is waving. And, and here's, here's the other part of this, and I'm going to choose my words very, very carefully here. The skin's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, too. It's made up of all of these little teeny tiny cells to keep the body together. Now listen, I'm using the word body, and I want to acknowledge something. In a world that has for centuries and generations been hatefully abusive towards women, I get and understand, like, I have so much compassion for the argument that this is my body. I, I do. I understand it. I get where you're coming from. But I want to appeal to you, especially if you, uh, listen, you're not going to accept the Word of God. I want to appeal for you, to you, even scientifically this morning, the little teeny, itty-bitty, tiny skin cells that make up the skin of this little itty-bitty baby, and every single one of them have DNA that is uniquely theirs. It is just, it has every chromosome that is meant to make up this uh, being as it grows into a full maturity. That's what it's intended for. And just millimeters away, there are other cells that have distinctly different DNA chromosomes. As respectfully and humbly I, the best argument for this, the, the way of being most compassionate is to let you know and understand, I get it, this is a body, this is a human, this is a baby. Everybody has worth, everybody has dignity, and everybody has value, no matter how big and magnificent you grow, no matter how vulnerable and small you are, but there is no doubt about this, everyone who bears the image of God deserves protection. But we live in an evil age, we've got to say it, where we will allow those bodies to be dismembered, to be placed with forceps next to awful for spines to be severed, for brains to be sucked through a tube. If that doesn't make you angry, like justified, angry, like God, I believe, is angry. I don't know what will. In this darkness, one in three black babies in this nation will be aborted, and there is no other word for it than de facto eugenics. There's no, there's no other word for it. In the hardness of our hearts, 55 million plus babies have been aborted since Roe versus Wade, and that's not according to some weird right-wing website. That's according to the center of disease. Center of disease. 
in futility, an entire generation of women has been decimated by one-child policies and preferential abortions that choose men over women in China and India. That's the world that we live in. And just in case you didn't know, because I certainly didn't, I'm aware of the statistics within our own country, but if that all didn't get you, in ignorance, 42.4 million babies were aborted in 2019. That's more than cancer, it's more than traffic accidents, it's more than smoking, it's more than alcohol, it's more than malaria, it's more than HIV AIDS combined. Abortion is the number one killer worldwide, and it's not close. No new self, no disciple of Jesus should have anything to do with promoting the imago dei defying institution of abortion. I, listen, I know what I'm saying. We're, we're talking about this as a family. We're talking about it theologically. We're talking it, about it as new selves. I'm going to say this again. No new self should have anything to do with promoting the imago dei defying institution of abortion, but we do. We do. There are some of us that are sitting in the midst of great and grievous pain because we've counseled friends for abortion. We may have chosen abortion. We may have uh, men paid for, manipulated, coerced, or even forced a woman to have an abortion. And so we're sitting in the midst of all of this as a deep-seated shame, and what I want you to remember is, neither do I condemn you. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more as this new self. Grace, oceans of grace. But here's the truth. This is not merely, maybe not even primarily, I would argue, an individual sin. All of us participate in this. You go, no, yes. Go and look at the list of companies that not indirectly, but directly support Planned Parenthood. I guarantee you, every one of you, you have used, you have purchased products that go into those companies, and with just the fungibility of money, like we have to agree that we're living in this place where it's, it's almost maybe completely impossible to get away from this. We have seen in our society the decimation of families. We've decided, uh, because this is taboo, not to talk about it, which is exactly what they want. It's exactly what the forces of darkness want. It's exactly what Satan and his demons want. Men are missing in action. They're not taking care of uh, women. They're not taking care of the babies that they born. And women are caught in the crossfire, scared and isolated. The church should be on the front line of this issue. I know we're running over. I get it. I know that this is a sobering topic for us. I know that there's actually just no way to just in an application section to address this in any appropriate way. I, I get it. What we're doing today is initiating a conversation that before now has been hinted at. We've talked about it a little bit, but it's been years. 
What I want to do today is to initiate a conversation within our church, within your families, within your friend groups, within your discipleship groups, within your companies. I want to initiate a conversation where we're actually able and willing to talk. So what is, what, I'm going to fast forward to the end because I know, I know. What do we do? I want to give a few quick things. Our new self needs to pray. We need to pray a lot. We need to ask God to end abortion. We need to pray it boldly. We need to pray it, pray it I would submit to you, just daily. Pray. We need to be equipped. You can go to abortion73.com. It's a, it's a really good and I think a pretty even-handed um, place to get resources. We've got a lot of good resources there. Our church is going to help resource you. On February 9th, we're going to have, uh, after our gathering here, we're going to provide lunch. We're going to have just an equipping event. And uh, Carson, who uh, is here with us this morning, who's going to man a table in the back, get you information that you would like to have. If you'd like to have a conversation with him, if you'd like to have more information, he's coming to us uh, from Watermark Church, where they are really trying to uh, initiate and do some really good work in this area. And he's helping lead out in that. I want for us to be equipped. I want for us to talk about it. Do we talk about it? I had the first conversation outside of the church. I had a conversation this week in work about this issue. I'm not sure. I I don't know when the last time that I did that was. I have not been willing to talk about it, but in order for it to end, that's what it's going to have to take. We need to be activated in this. We have a member of our church, Michael Boone. He's uh, wrapping up med school. He's about to head into residency and everything. And I'm so humbled by this guy in so many different ways. Uh, God has been stirring his heart for this. And uh, one of the things that he's been doing a little bit of and starting to walk out in is just go and pray at the clinics here in town. He's bold, willing to just go and, and tell people in a very loving way, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for your baby. So walking into the clinics. We need to activate in some serious ways, but the most important way that we need to do that is by loving women. <clears throat> we need to be loving women really well. The church needs to be a place where women can come and know and expect that they receive unending support. We need to build such a thick fabric of community here that a woman who's experiencing an unplanned pregnancy can come here and not feel one ounce of judgment, no outsidedness, and be loved and supported. That's what I pray for our body. I pray that we could be a place that mothers, single mothers, could come and be. For, for what it's worth, I don't know that we've always done that really well. I don't think that I know that because I've been told that by single moms, and no judgment. We need to grow in it. We need to have conversations like this in order to do it. I think that one of the things that we can do is 
volunteer at pregnancy centers, consider foster care and adoption. We have uh, the Byfords who are uh, amazingly involved over at Gladney. We have other families who are fostering uh, through other organizations. Like, go and talk with them. They would love to talk with you about this. God has pulled their hearts. Now, here's what I'm not saying, okay? There are lots of different areas that we can be involved in. If God's got you uh, working on the Imago Day in the area of uh, ministering to homeless people, uh, if you are uh, going into jails and ministering to inmates, if you're just right where you are ministering to a broken-hearted friend, if that's where God has you, if that's where you're supposed to be serving, I'm not trying to mix any of that stuff up this morning, but I would say this. If maybe you're new, you've moved into Fort Worth, you haven't found a place to serve, and you haven't necessarily had your heart moved to work in a certain area, I ask that you would consider this. I ask that you would consider signing up today to come to the training uh, on February 9th just to get more information. It's not exactly a punchy place to leave everything, but we've got to do it this morning. Let me, let me pray for God's hand of grace on us as a church this morning. I just want to let you know also, I'll be up here. Um, listen, one last thing. I'm sorry. I've got to say this. If, you're, if, if, the, if the enemy is sitting here accusing you this morning, if the enemy is reminding you of a way that you have participated in this, if you've had an abortion, I want you to know, I want for City Church to be a place where you can be loved in the midst of that and feel the grace of that because that's exactly what Jesus feels towards you. That's what I feel towards you. So, but don't keep it to yourself. Come and talk with someone in your city group, in your discipleship group as they transition, and uh, talk to a pastor. Talk to a trusted woman who's a friend that you know will send, you know, will just point you towards the love and grace of Jesus. Have those conversations. Pray with me. Father God, I'm just, it is so obvious to me how inadequate an application part of a sermon is, Lord, I pray that you would just multiply it. Um, Father, I pray that you would not allow for one ounce of this to, uh, to uh, be too heavy on us, Lord, because you give us an, uh, an easy yoke, a light yoke, Lord. Father, I pray that uh, our worship of you not only wouldn't be inhibited, but Lord, that we would just praise and honor you as the amazing God of this universe who does not condemn those who are found in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that in us this morning. Lord, um, I pray that you would continue to work in our midst and create uh, a place in City Church that is safe, that is loving, that is careful, that is bold, that is truthful, Lord, about what has to be the most injustice currently happening in our world. Lord, we pray that you would put an end to it. We pray that in some small way you would use us uh, to help do that, Lord. We love you. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.